Hi everyone, this is the Brandon Adams Podcast. This is episode four. I'm super excited to have one of really the most important people in my intellectual development the past six or seven years, Ben Hunt. He writes the Epsilon Theory blog. Uh, I've read, I believe, every post of this blog. <laughs> and I also uh, used it occasionally as as reading in uh, the Ec 970 class that I taught at Harvard. I was teaching international macroeconomics and uh, I'd, I'd sprinkle in some, some Ben Hunt posts every once in a while. So Ben, it's a pleasure to have you. Well, it's wonderful to be here, Brandon. Thank, thanks for this. It's, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to this. So your pieces come out, I would say on average every, every two weeks and they're, they're on the, they're on the meaty side. I would say, uh, they often require a, a couple readings. Um, but in, in the same way, they're quite addictive. I've found myself, uh, really, I don't know how I stumbled upon your blog in 2012 or two, or, but, uh, you've really kept it consistent since, since 2012. Is that right? That, that, that's right, Brandon. So I, you know, I started writing, I just wound down my hedge fund. We can, we can talk about that. Uh, and I was trying to figure out you know how markets had, had structurally changed because they have changed the, 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 the structure of markets and the the way that not just the, the it's not just you know the old saying you know you're not just playing the cards you're playing the players the the, the way that one has to play the players in markets today has, has changed so dramatically uh, since the you know the great recession and then particularly since the central bank uh, response uh, to, to, to those events. And so, you know, as I say, we had given all the money back in, in, our, in our hedge fund, which, had, you know, we got it up to, to, to close to a billion dollars. And, um, you know, we had done great in 05, 06, 07, and we had killed it in 08. We had a career year in 08. And, um, but I'll tell you, from March of 09 onward, it was like you went to the wall and you flipped a switch on our returns. You just uh, you flipped the light switch off. You know, we never lost money for clients, but our returns flatlined uh, because what the way we were uh, both playing the cards and playing the player and very successfully up until March of '09, uh, it, it just didn't it didn't work anymore. Like I said, we never lost money, but but you know, when you're running a hedge fund, you're you're doing it to make money. For people and you're charging fees appropriately so you know single digit returns and charging whatever it is we charge that you know it's just not intellectually honest if, if, if anything else so in the, the summer of 2012 we we wound down the fund uh, because I, I, I needed space to figure it out one the one thing you learn about when you're when you're managing OPM when you're managing other people's money right that that has to be your, your your sole and overwhelming focus, right? You you can't be a dilettante in managing other people's money. That has to be your you know your twenty four seven all in uh, exercise. So it, it it was really important to 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 push back from that and try to figure out how the world was was changed, how the world of investing had changed. And so I, I started writing this note, you know, that I grandiosely called the first of these publications a manifesto. You know, how, how you know, self-important is that, right, to, 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 to call it a manifesto. And I, and I was really just writing to myself. I sent out an email to, to, to about 100 clients and, or former clients and, and, and colleagues. And, I, and I'll say for whatever reason, and we can get into what those reasons are, it, it really struck a chord. Uh, so... You know, so since then, um, actually, I guess it was the summer of 2013, right, where I really started doing the writing. So over that, the, the past six years and a couple of months, you know, it's, it's gone from that, the 100 email recipients I sent it to, and we've, we've got over 100,000 today. And, and, and it's all happened through word of mouth. It's all happened through just people forwarding an email or going to the, the website where I was, where, where I was putting these, these notes up. 
and, and, and when I say it struck a chord and, and, and it was, look, I, I think I'm a pretty decent writer. You know, it's what I like, like you, I was an academic for a long time. Uh, you know, I started a software company and then I got into this racket of, you know, managing money. Uh, but, you know, I've always been a writer all the way, way, way throughout. So I, I look, I, I think I'm a good writer. Uh, but I think that what's really clicking with people, the, the chord that we're striking here is that there has been a sea change and it's not just in our markets, but also in our politics. It's, it's the, the role of narrative. It's the, the intentional use of words and messages uh, to, 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 to impact our behavior. Uh, that's something that's explicitly done by central banks today. And I think it's a big part about why investing changed from March of 2009 onwards, what they call forward guidance. Uh, but, you know, we, we see it everywhere today. And, and so that's really been the, one of the main focuses of what I write about and how I think about markets and, and, and voting, right, our lives as investors and our lives as citizens. And, um, you know, that, that's what I continue to try to do today, both to be better investors so that we can make money, right, in, the, in, these, in these markets, but also so we can be better citizens uh, so that we can, I hope, reclaim some of the autonomy, uh, some of the, the, again, this, uh, this sounds, you know, too important, but the liberty that I think we've largely lost, um, you know, just not over the last, the, the last decade, but, um, you know, over the last several decades. Anyways, that's a long-winded introduction, but, but, but that, that is how it started, and that is what I'm trying to do. I love it. I love it. And, the audience of this podcast uh, does include a lot of poker players. I've, I've long noted that uh, poker players have a little bit of a pessimism bent, and you do have some poker in your background, which is, which is not unusual for someone who came through the economics, political science profession at the time you came through. Game theory was uh, very very important at that time and and obviously poker has always been used in game theory examples i've always find, found that poker players have this pessimism bias and in in myself i find that uh it's a it's a costly bias it has been ex post cost it has been ex post costly um and the the market repeatedly gives me feedback that I'm wrong. I'm wrong in being too pessimistic. I can be quite stubborn in that I still sometimes believe that that I, that I'm actually right. Um, but I would assume that maybe your positions uh, were more pessimistic than market consensus at a lot of points in time, which led you to do well in 2007 and 2008, and then be somewhat frustrated in 2011, 2012, um, I, one of the, one of the concepts that I find most powerful in your, in your writing is, uh, the interaction of politics and financial markets and your notion that I believe, I believe no one else has mentioned this notion that, that markets have become a political utility and, yeah. and governments, uh, act in a way that uh, <clears throat> suggests that that they think people are entitled to eight percent returns forevermore, and not only eight percent returns, but stable eight percent returns. And uh, <clears throat> this concept of markets as a political utility, obviously, it comes somewhat from our from our lawmakers and how they jawbone the market and and also from the ever more important central banking community and when you follow central bankers which i think many of your your posts you you do tend to uh really have an em emphasis on this increasing central bank involvement in in the economy uh but especially in the last nine months the the tortured language that they use to justify continuous new interventions is really quite remarkable. Like it, it's, it's gotten to a point where any 
two to five percent pullback is enough to uh, justify justify a, a new round. And this is a this is just a change in how we operate economies and financial markets. Well, well Brandon, let me let me touch on a couple of, of points that you raised there. Uh, you know, and the first is your your notion about uh, I'll call it the 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 the, the the pessimism bias, you know, we always remember our, our bad beats pretty well, right, as, 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 as poker players. And, and that's true as, I'll say, as active traders, investors, as, as, as hedge fund PMs. And that, that, that's absolutely right. And um, this was part of what I had to figure out by, um, you know, winding down my fund and thinking about how the world changed really starting in 09 and then really picking up steam in, in 2012 in the summer of 2013 when, you know, Mario Draghi says, whatever it takes, and then all of a sudden, you know, the euro is saved and European markets come, come, come running back. Uh, I, I do think that the market has changed. And, and, and the way I want to relate that to game play and game theory and, and the like is this. I think that one of the reasons that, uh, as you say, poker players gravitate towards markets and investing is that uh, particularly in the derivative world, right, the options and derivative world, that world is always a zero-sum game, right? So the derivative markets are, by definition, a zero-sum game, like a game of poker, right? They're, 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 there's a, for the game as a whole, there's a winner and a loser, right? They're, they're, there's not some kind of magical wealth that's created for everyone, you know, in the, in the, in the, the playing of most games and derivative markets are the same way. That was absolutely the way it felt to me when I was running my hedge fund in 2005, six, seven, eight, and then, you know, even go the, the early part of 2009, it felt like that zero sum game where, you know, you're going long, you're going short, you have winners, you have losers, and you're going to be a winner. And, and I, and I played that game really well. Um, and I think that's, that's the world that's very familiar to a lot of people who aren't in um, markets right now because that world changed, right? So when I say that it, that it has become a political, political utility, what I mean is that you had a new player in the game, that being central banks, who have no interest in rewarding quality companies, whatever that means to you, and punishing crappy companies. That's, that was the game, right? That, that was the game I played and I played really well, right? That, that I want to go long the companies that have some, you know, catalyst, something that will make them succeed, right? And I want to short the companies that have some crappiness to, to them, right? Where they're going to fail. When the central banks come involved and their goal is to lift the price of, to, to provide a, a, a tide that lifts the all financial asset boats, you're no longer making a distinction between good companies and crappy companies. That, that, that zero-sum aspect of the game of markets, it goes away. And, and that's what I mean about it becoming a political utility. And that's why I think you, you know, very correctly noted, look, if the market's down, you know, two to 5%, all of a sudden it's, oh my God, we got to do something. You know, we can't have this happen. And that environment where it's now, you know, the game is no longer making a differentiation between, uh, you know, crappy companies and good companies. The game is now, all right, how much support are the political players providing for, for, for markets? That, that's a total change in the rules of the game and the entire nature of the game. So look, I'll tell you, since 2013, in, in you know, my personal investing, I've been levered long, right? <laughs> you know, it, because it, it doesn't make sense to try to play that zero-sum game of markets when the rules of the game have changed and where the meaning of the stock market or any sort of market has changed from being a capital market where, where capital is getting to private companies and it's become this political utility. So it's, it is that change in the rules that, are, that I think has really changed both my, my own personal investing, uh, but it hasn't changed what I like to write about because it makes me sad, right? This change in markets makes me sad. You know, why do we, why do we like to play poker? Why do we like to, to, to play markets? Because it's fun. 
right? Because we're good at it and we're smart and, you know, we're, we can try to separate the winners from the losers. So I, I'm, I'm sad that the nature of markets has changed in this sort of way. And I, and I think that my writing connotes that sadness and, 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 and frankly, maybe how or ways in which it can go back. I don't know. But in, in my own personal life, my own personal investing life, I think it is important to recognize when the rules have changed, when the game has changed, and to play the new game as best you can, even if it's not nearly as much fun. So one of the things that I respect about your writing is that you're uh, not quick to bring politics in there. You're fairly agnostic about politics. You're also careful not to make predictions, but having read your blog for as long as I have, you can read between the lines in certain ways. Um, and it seems fair to say that you, you disagree with the way that federal reserve intervention has, has led to extremes in inequality ways, ways where it, it, it seems, it seems that um, it's long been known that we've responded to crisis by, by stimulating the economy. We often do it with monetary policy. Uh, when we stimulate in that way, it helps the wealthy because the monetary policy pushes up asset prices, real estate, stocks, all the things that wealthy own. And the rich get benefit, the poor get no benefit. And... More to the point, we, we assume based on history that those monetary policies will lead to expected inflation at some point in the future, which will hurt the poor. Um, so you're, you're not only helping the rich, but you're hurting the poor. And it, we hoped uh, as economic observers that the extreme central bank interventions of the crisis period would be, if not reversed, then, then paused as we as we mounted a recovery, but we mounted a recovery, and yet the interventions get more and more extreme, and there's there's no hope of reversals. So uh, it really feels as if the wealthy um, almost step on the throat of the poor in the way that they conduct economic policy. And some of your recent posts have have explored this view um, where. There's not only is this happening, but it happens in a quite cynical way where some of the uh, some of the, say, powerful corporate heads um, will engage in buybacks for the stated purpose of efficient allocation of resources, but the practical purpose of uh, sterilizing their stock option programs where they're, where they're making a lot of money. So, so I, I guess the poker player in you constantly cynical about motives. Um, you, you, you believe that first of all, the way we, the way we conduct economic policy has gotten to an extreme level. And, and then, uh, people will ostensibly say we're doing something for capital market efficiency, but the practical, uh, the practical result is enriching themselves. I think that what the Fed did in March of 09, right, which is to enter the market and directly participate by buying stuff, right, the, you know, what, what we call, you know, quantitative easing, right, or large-scale asset purchases, these LSAT programs where they buy things, right, and what do they buy? They buy financial assets. They buy first uh, uh, U.S. Treasuries and then more recently mortgage-backed securities, with the goal of propping up the price of those securities and, and as a result, propping up the price of all financial assets. And I want to be really clear. I think that when they, the, the Federal Reserve did this in, in, in March of 09, I think it was exactly the right thing to do. I think it saved the world. I think that, that is the, that's the entire reason that financial, that, that in the financial system that central banks exist. They exist to be that provider of what we'll call liquidity of last resort. They are there to put money into the system to buy stuff when no one else will. 
right? It's if 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 you remember the you know the movie Pulp Fiction, right, where you know Uma Thurman is OD'd and the John Travolta gets that syringe of adrenaline and puts it right into to Uma Thurman's heart. That's what the Fed did in March of '09 with QE1, and I think it was exactly the right thing to do. But here's what happened, right? You see the same thing happen in the 1930s. You see the same thing happening over and over and over again, where emergency government action becomes permanent government policy. And, and, and we can argue about whether that's good or that's bad, right? All I'm saying is it is. That's what's happened, right? Where this emergency government action becomes permanent government policy. And it, in, in, in a very real sense, I, I think that our, our, our monetary policy has been captured by the academics uh, who, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't play a real world poker game, right? And, and, and they don't, I think, adequately appreciate how what, what really drives markets and poker games, anything else you can imagine, what is constant is fear and greed, right? And it's the way that, that humans respond to the rule set that's provided to them, to the opportunities that, that's provided to them, to the dangers that's provided to them, and then they will maximize their behavior on the basis of fear and greed. And, and what we've had over the past decade I believe, with this constant, uh, again, I'll call bureaucratic capture of the price of money has led to behaviors that are, you know, quite rational. And, and, and anybody who's listening to this, to this podcast will think, well, you know, hell, I'd do the same thing myself. And, and I probably would. You know, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. But the game has been set up. The, the, the rules of the game have shifted, as I was describing a second ago, away from, I'll say, rewarding quality companies, punishing crappy companies, and rewarding the people who make those sort of distinctions in their active management of, of, of investment, to uh, an era where because the price of money is so low and will stay so low, that it's possible for now management teams to game that system for their own enrichment. And again, it's not, it's not evil, it's just human. It just, this, this is, this, it, but, it, but similarly, it makes me not just sad, it, it makes me angry because as you point out, the wealth inequality in this country and in many countries, it's not, it's not diminishing, it's accelerating. These are not mean reverting phenomena, right? They, they don't just go back to the way they were. And, and I think in a very real sense, you know, both politically and now in our, in our markets, uh, you, you know, we have this widening gyre where, we, where the, the, we become more polarized over time, where the inequality becomes more pronounced, and ultimately this gets cashed out in uh, uh, conflictual, if not violent, politics. And, and that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm writing about today, to call people's attention, right, to the games in which this widening gyre is accelerating, because we've got to start talking about ways to, to, to first slow it down and then try to reverse it. So uh, Jim Grant has this view of the Federal Reserve as both firefighter and arsonist, yeah. Which, yeah. which I think is a compelling description of what happens now because you have craziness in financial markets that's that stems from dislocations that the Fed introduces and then and then uh, those financial market dislocations cause something to go radically haywire and that justifies the next Federal Reserve intervention which then moves us farther and farther away from true markets and it does, it feels like it's going to be hard to uh, to get away from that uh, process and I I, I I would like to focus on a, a, a couple things. One, you you seem you seem to have complexity as a theme in a lot of your pieces, and and complexity, it's it's always been dear to my heart, both in terms of 
looking at economies, financial markets, and, and just trying to manage a life. Uh, complexity is a killer. And it's important to uh, be able to cut through complexity. It's an important part of what markets do, right? You don't have to know what other people's interests are. You can just observe simple signals, prices, and, and do your thing. And complexity is reduced in the system. Uh, but it seems like central bank intervention has increased complexity impossibly because no one knows what's happening to future price levels. We have no history of having uh, negative interest rates. We have no history of continuous bank intervention in markets. Um, and I know history is near and dear to your heart. So how how is one expected to operate in uh, in this world? And I want to explore one other theme because I know you and I, we shared a similar uh, academic background. We probably had a lot of the same courses with a lot of the same teachers. Yep. And I'm a little younger, but I think a lot of our classes probably went the same way. And studying the long history of economic policy, uh, it was always clear that that the years around 2020, 2025, were going to be challenging from a government finance perspective because we've known about the aging of populations and we've known about the problems of entitlement promises, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, for a long time. The aging of populations is the most predictable thing we deal with in economics, and it was always clear that medical expenses were increasing at 10% a year, whereas all other prices were increasing at 3% a year, and that was gonna be a problem when we had committed to pay for uh, all of the desired medical expenses of our aging population. So, so we knew that these were gonna be challenging years, and the big picture of government finance is playing out exactly as one could have expected. Um, we now, this past year, had close to a $1.3 trillion deficit at a time when you had record low in unemployment. Um, and this is a booming economy, a booming stock market. Um, one of the important lessons of 2009 was that a, a not often talked about consequence of income and wealth inequality is that the tax base becomes more levered because you're so dependent on how the wealthy are doing that when, when say stock markets go down, the, the government inflows uh, go way down. So people were absolutely shocked in 2009 when you had a $1.9 trillion expected federal deficit, when California had a $19 billion uh, deficit, but arguably the next downturn is going to bring even more red, right? Because uh, California to me was pretty much um, a look at the future because income and wealth is, is so divided there. Um, and no one talks about the fact, all right, today Uber, I, uh, Uber shares unlock. So founders can sell their Uber shares. When, when um, people are selling a billion dollars in Uber shares, they're cutting a check to the state of California for 160 million. Maybe one guy is selling a billion dollars in shares, cutting a check to the state of California for 160 million. Those are checks that go to the government at times like now. They don't go in a bus time. And we don't talk about the fact that, hey, 2019 isn't the state of California lucky to get this $160 million check from this person. Um, we don't realize how levered the tax base is until we're on the bad side of leverage. And what's, what seems inevitable is that in the next downturn, which might not even take much of a downturn, you're gonna see a sea of red ink from governments. And it seems to me that a lot of the Federal Reserve intervention and central bank intervention is the fact that that those guys were in class with us. They know this stuff and they have to play defense. They have to find someone to fund the deficit, not only now, but into the forever future where the deficits are getting larger and larger. 
And so there is a true political game going on where they have to figure out, all right, how are we going to thread this needle where we have roughly what we need to survive in terms of government inflows without an insane inflation rate? Challenge a little bit of this. And, and, and it, where we'll end up at the end of this, I promise, is your initial point about complexity, right? And, and, and the way that we as human beings have to deal with that. So I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the, the answer right now to that very fundamental question, which is, well, how do we how do we make our way in this sort of world? And, and the answer is with profound agnosticism. So that, that, that's where we're going to end up, and I want to spend some time on that because it's, when I say profound agnosticism, I, I, I mean in a, in a really profound way, right? When I, I mean a very deep way is what I mean about being agnostic about these things. Uh, but, but where I want to start with this discussion is to, to challenge a little bit of, of, of what you're describing about the, the downturn and, you know, what's the, the reaction function of the, the, the Fed and the, and the like to something, to, to something like a downturn. You know, when I mentioned that, that, that we've really seen a, a transformation of the rules of the game away from the, the zero sum, uh, or not the zero, but the kind of the zero sum play of the game and the ups and the downs and the winners and the losers, to a game where capital markets become a political utility, you know, my question would be, well, we're going to have a downturn? Really? I mean, listen, you just said yourself, right? That, that every time there's even like a 2 or 5% decline in markets or something like, you know, Q4 of last year, oh my God, right? You know, the, the, the world is coming to an end and, 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 and so we will do anything to stop that regardless of its impact on the real economy. And, and that's kind of where I'm going on this, right? Which is that what, what we saw in the 2009 reaction to the great financial crisis, and, and I, we can talk about the, the, the ways in which this response took place, but the response of every government and market actor of size, the reaction was never again, never again, are we going to have, allow, or are we going to allow a deflationary crisis, a deflationary shock like we saw in 2008, which, which we came so close to the entire system unraveling, right? You know, I've, I've told this story before, you know, the, the, the day that, that, that Lehman went under, you know, I say we, we killed it in 08 and, and I had every position set up in 08 and, and, and that even just that day, I was, I was like saying, fuck yeah, I'm just, I just made so much money today. And, and then I'm thinking about it. I'm, you know, cause it's the zero sum game. I'm doing great. And then it suddenly hit me, which is like, well, hang on. I know I, I don't have any, it's not that Lehman itself, you know, owes me money. But, you know, Goldman does, uh, JP Morgan does. Um, well, you know, if they shut down the markets, so this whole, if the whole thing comes unglued, right? If the casino burns to the ground, who's going to pay me? And, and that was the moment where I was like, all right, it's not a game anymore. The, 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 the whole system we, is, is with an inch of becoming completely done. Right? And, and so there were, there were a couple of programs that were initiated. It's not really TARP. The, 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 the thing that saved the day was what was called the, the Temporary Liquidity Guarantee Program. Right? So this is when the U.S. Treasury came out. This was a few weeks after Lehman failed. And they said, if you are a federally chartered U.S. bank, you may now borrow money. You may now issue debt, unsecured debt, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, right? So, so that program, it, look, within two days, Goldman Sachs becomes a federally chartered U.S. bank. Morgan Stanley becomes a federally chartered U.S. bank. And they issue tens of billions of dollars worth of debt, of funding, just to, to, to save themselves. That, that saved the whole system. It saved the entire system. And... Everything after that, the, the, the Federal Reserve with its programs of quantitative easing and, and constant intervention and, and constant talking, the, the forward guidance, the narrative effort, 
It's all as a result of that. And, and so I, and not just in the United States, all over the world, right? So the, the Bank of Japan, the, the, the ECB, uh, you know, the, 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 the Bank of China, right? That we, they, they've all kind of linked arms and said, we're never going to allow that sort of deflationary shock to happen again. We will do, as Draghi said, whatever it takes to prevent that from happening. And we've built up this enormous Maginot line against future deflationary shocks. So if, you're, if your worry is that, oh, we're going to have a downturn in markets and we're going to be down 20% and then, oh, we won't be able to write, you know, checks to, you know, for tax revenues for the states or in the pension funds are going to, 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 to fail. My answer to you is, well, why are we going to have a 20% decline? Why, why is that going to happen? It could have happened in the past, but if the game has changed so that capital markets are now political utilities, that can't happen. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't fail for other reasons, right? It just means that the attack isn't going to go through the freaking Maginot line. You're not going to send the tanks across the Maginot line because you can't, right? The tanks, and there will be tanks, there will be, there will be um, you know, if not a collapse, there will, be, there will be a breakdown of the system in the future, the way that systems always break down, but it's going to come from a different direction. I strongly believe that different direction is going to come from inflation, not deflation. I strongly believe that that, that, that uh, crisis is going to come out of the other thing that you mentioned, right? The, the, the entitlement programs, the spending that the government has to do to, to, to stay a legitimate government. We're going to have more of that, not just more, but more, capital M, capital O, capital A, capital R. And the way to pay for that, because you can't just pay for it through taxation, is to, to cut the cord, to say, well, we don't have to pay for it through taxation. What I'm telling you is that it's no accident that we're running trillion-dollar deficits in this country. It, it literally doesn't matter anymore, because when the next step for all central banks to, to take if there is a problem, oh, my God, we can't tax people because that would provide this deflationary collapse, well, we say, well, then, then don't tax for it, right? It's jubilee. It's, it's you, you forgive the debt. You, you, you just eliminate the debt, right? You monetize the debt. That's what is coming, right? I don't care who's elected in 2020. We're going to have something like a $2 trillion uh, spending program, fiscal spending program in the United States. If, if, if Trump's reelected, he'll call it an infrastructure bond and if, you know, Warren or whoever's elected, we're going to call it a green bond. But it'll be something like $2 trillion. And we're not going to tax to, 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 to pay for that, right? The, the Fed will buy it. The Fed will monetize it. This is what happens next. And, 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 I'll, and, I, and I'll tell you how it breaks down. In the same way that we've seen enormous inflation in asset prices, financial assets, the result when this sort of spending, this sort of policy gets into the real economy is inflation there as well. And, and that's, that's what starts to break down our system and that's, that's what breaks down our market system and, and the like. That's what's coming down the pike. That's something that central banks don't have the tools to deal with because they've built this freaking Maginot line over these scenarios that, that you know, you were describing a few minutes ago, the, the deflationary shock scenarios. The, the next war is never the same as the last war. Our last war, the war we fought in 2008 on an economic front was a deflationary war. That's not going to be the next war. Uh, and, and I think it's important to us as investors and as citizens, and this is where I'm going to go get into the being, what does it mean to be profoundly agnostic, Right. What we have to do as investors and as citizens is to not allow ourselves to be drawn into fighting the next war, to understand that, that the, the basic rules of the game can change, and to think, well, if the rules of the game change in this way, how should I react? But to think in terms of reacting, not in terms of predicting 
because predicting is not just, you're not just going to be wrong in this sort of environment. Predicting is dangerous. And, and that's, that is, you're right, one of the big messages of what I write is that we shouldn't try to predict. We shouldn't take on that sort of hubris, but we have to be very clear-eyed so that we can react appropriately for ourselves and our families and our communities. So uh, pushing, pushing back on, on yeah. your view, um, it's sort of dangerous to take old concepts from economic history and try to apply them today uh, when everything has changed. But I nonetheless uh, try to do that sometimes. Um, arguably, there's some old concepts from economic history that explain why we haven't had inflation yet. One, one concept is we've had widening income and wealth inequality, and it's long been known that, that the, the wealthy spend a lower proportion of their, their income and wealth. Um, and arguably with uncertain times, that's even more true today because uh, there's a piece that I liked from several years ago by the blogger Robert Waldman, who, who talks about um, the demand for financial assets is like insurance against future possibilities. And the demand for insurance for what might go wrong is never ending. And, and so there, there is a, uh, a tendency for wealthy to respond to their, their increased asset prices by just, by just staying in wealth that they view as uh, protection against future states of the world and not spend. And that explains why inflation doesn't, doesn't really kick up. There's also a concept I like from Robert Schiller, which is the, uh, like the, moral, the moral anchors of a bubble, by which he means that, that for a bubble in financial asset prices to sustain for a long period of time, you have to have the individuals who are participating in the bubble to not want to convert their financial assets to real assets, because if they did, there would, it would be highly inflationary. So from Schiller's view, viewpoint, say since 1980, you've had uh, financial assets of all time, of all types inflating at 10% per year whereas the underlying wealth productive capacity of the economy is inflating at 3% a year, clearly that shouldn't happen for 40 years. And the thing that allows it to continue is that the wealthy are not in a hurry to, to say, hey, that's irrational to have financial assets inflate much quicker than the real productive capacity of the economy. Um, I'm gonna convert my financial asset wealth to real wealth. If they did that, there would be inflation. And so there's been a, uh, the fact that they don't, they don't do it leads to uh, the low levels of inflation that they observe. Um, I, am, I am reluctant to think that we could have, say, big deficits, big monetized deficits in, say, a couple years without having a big increase in inflation. Um, obviously monetized deficits are nothing new and the only, um, the only predictive power that I've ever seen is if you look at the percent of government revenue that's funded by taxes, when that falls below 60%, there's never been a government that has stayed there for a couple of years and not had a hyperinflationary event. So that so let me let me interrupt a second, Brandon, because I, I you know, we're not we're not disagreeing on on what happens in terms of I think and this is in fact exactly what I'm saying, that that when you get this sort of, of spending, deficit spending in the real economy, then then inflation in the real economy is the is the result. Right? I, I we're we're agreeing on that. What I'm saying though is that a response to that that debt, right, is to um, well, there there are really there there are only three responses to debt, right? You can uh, you can you can you can grow your way out of it, right, and that that's that's what everyone wants to do with debt, and unfortunately, 
the United States has not passed a point of no return. The United States could actually grow its way out of debt. Most, but that it's becoming more and more difficult every year where you, you know, add another trillion dollars to it. Most economies in the world, they don't even have that ability to ever grow their way out of the debt we have. All right, the second option is to inflate your way out of debt. And I think that that's clearly, you know, the direction where, where you know, one way which is going. And the third way is to, um, you know, default on the debt, you know, to um, austerity your way out of, out of, out, out of debt. And, and that, that door, no, no country in the world is, go, is, is going through anymore. I mean, the, the austerity narrative is dead in this country, it's dead in, in Europe, it's even dead in Germany, for God's sake, right? So there's, there's, no, there's no narrative, there's no impetus to do more taxing to, um, you know, to, to alleviate the debt. On the contrary, the, the, the drive to do spending, to have fiscal spending, is, 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 is overwhelming today, which is why I'm saying that I don't care who gets elected in 2020, you've got massive fiscal spending problem, you know, issues coming down, coming down the pike. But here's my question, right? So if, if we're no longer thinking about taxes as necessary to pay for our spending, then why do we have taxes? Why do taxes exist? And, and, I'll, and I'll give you the answer, right? The, the, the taxes then, the meaning of taxes, if it's no longer to pay for things, the meaning of taxes becomes justice. It becomes justice. And it becomes the justice in the minds of whoever's running the government at the time. So justice for, you know, our current administration means the tax cut and haha jobs act of 2017 right which was a a a a massive redistribution of wealth to preferentially to corporations into the rich if it's a war in government or ever government then the notion of taxation as justice becomes soaking the rich right and, and, and the, the the reason that i think that 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 we as citizens and investors the reason I think this gets much worse before it gets any better, right, is, is that once you sever that link between taxes as a means to pay for something, and now you say, no, 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 we're just going to do it. We don't have to pay for it. What do taxes mean in that world? And if taxes then mean justice, right, that people get their fair share, whatever that means to the the politicians happen to be in charge in the time, that's, that's an incredibly, I'll call it civically violent environment. And that's the environment I think we're moving into. And that's the mechanism by which I think markets and investing gets shook, right? It doesn't get shook because, oh, we have a recession or, or you know, these deflationary shocks. No, we're not going to have a recession because we're going to be doing all this spending domestically. You know, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be forgiving debts and, you know, everyone gets a job and, you know, all of these issues to try to push money into the, into the real economy. There's no recession there. There's no deflationary shock. There is, however, as you're describing, enormous inflation. And, and, and that's what breaks this. Right, that that that's what breaks this, and it breaks us not just in markets, but it breaks us in, in in, in politics as well. So I, you know, I'm I'm agreeing with your scenario, right, about what happens when you no longer are taxing to pay for what you're providing in a in the in the the, the fiscal sense. Uh, what I'm asking, right, is that how do we as investors and as citizens, when we see that and the different directions that could go and we can't predict which direction it's going to go, how do we, you know, how do you survive that? How does your wealth survive that? How does your livelihood survive that? How does your autonomy of mind and, 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 and freedom survive that? You know, these are questions that, that we haven't, you know, had to wrestle with in the United States for, you know, over 100 years and, uh, you know, in Europe, 70 years. But 
I, I think we're going to have to wrestle with them again. And, and that's why it's so important to, 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 to get straight here. I think that, the, you know, the issue is not, oh, yeah, we're going to have another 2008. The issue is we're going to have something different. And, and not different in a good sense, but different in a, uh, in, in a sense where we don't, we're not prepared for that at all. So is it fair to say that you view the consequences of the long interventions that we've had to be either political in nature where we get a political, like one political lurch or multiple political lurches that are, that are destabilizing. So that's one outcome and, or another possible outcome is a sort of Argentina like, uh, hyperinflation destabilizing scenario. Um, and as we know, inflationary events, they tend not to be stable because the velocity of money goes up at such times and the, the, the tendency is once inflation uh, happens, it tends to get worse. So do you see it as a combination of those scenarios in, in at some point in the future or one scenario more likely to be to be true. So this is what I mean about the, the profound agnosticism. What all, all I can tell you, I can tell you two things. What I can tell you is that the, the fundamental rules of property and ownership and uh, the government's relationship with individuals, those fundamental rules are going to change. I don't know in which direction they're going to change. I could, I could see them changing in you know, very different permutations, right? The other thing I can tell you is that I can predict with certainty is that Again, fear and greed will rule the day, right? So it's so you know it's fear and greed, and it is not just not just risk. You know, risk is where you can assign a set of probabilities to an outcome, right? Where where you are. It, you know, in game theory, we talk about decision-making under risk, and this is when you take on, you know, expected utility calculations, and you're saying, okay, this is the odds of something happening. I've got some, some band of uncertainty around those odds, but I, I can make an expected utility calculation out of these future events because I can assign some, some probabilities to those futures. What I'm saying and what I mean by profound agnosticism is not, these are not decision-making, this is not decision-making under risk, this is decision-making under uncertainty where I can't even assign odds to these things, right? And, and, and any assignment of odds would be, you know, would be silly. It would just be, you know, making up a number for the sake of making up a number. And it doesn't mean that we have to um, just be chaotic or, or, or give up any sense of trying to plan our behavior when we're making decisions under uncertainty as opposed to decisions under risk. But it means we have to have a different toolkit. And the toolkit I think that is most appropriate for decision-making under uncertainty is what's called mini-max regret, right? Where the, the, the effort is not to try to, you know, maximize your outcome, that's expected utility, but mini-max regret says I'm trying to minimize my maximum regret, right? When, when, you're, when you're faced with situations of uncertainty, right, where I think that the fundamental rules of property ownership, of taxation, of all this, they're going to be up for grabs. I think that what we have to do is to, to, to follow principles of minimizing our maximum regret. And, and what that means for me personally is when I'm thinking about investing, uh, I'll talk about investing first and then about politics second, but when I think about investing, it means pushing away from the casino table of uh, public markets and finding and investing in real cash flows and real things that are really close to me, right? So, you know, that'll mean different things for different people, right? But, but, but I think the common denominator for me at least in minimizing my maximum regret from an investment point of view is to find real cash flows and real things that are, you know, that are close to me, you know, geographically that, that, I, can, that I can touch, that I can interact with on a daily basis. They're not symbols, that are not cartoons, they're not casino chips that I'm interacting with, but it's actual cash flows. As a citizen, 
I am similarly focused much more, much less on the symbolic and the national, and much more on the local, and 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 what I can, the the, the human interactions, the pack, you know, as I like to talk about it and what I write about, that 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 I can interact with. That's my minimization of maximum regret, my minimax regret strategy for an uncertain world as opposed to a risky world. You know, your results may vary. Uh, your calculation of that will be different, but that's the process I think we have to undertake when we're looking out at a world where the fundamental rules of the game we're playing, I think are almost certain to change. That makes, that makes absolute sense. So um, for, for a typical individual, you're saying throw out the conventional wisdom of the past with regard to investment management, career management, 60-40 portfolios and all of that and and really focus on making things as robust as, as possible. Here's what I'm saying, Brandon. So I'm, I, what I'm saying is you're smart enough to make up your own damn mind, first of all. That's what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is that you need to be reactive instead of predictive. And people hate that, right? You, you know, when, you know, for some reason, you know, saying that you're reactive, that becomes like a, you know, a dirty word. Oh, what do you mean you're reactive? Yeah. Well, I go back to this, you know, George Soros, who, you know, an amazing investor. And, 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 I, and, I, and I love this comment that he has. Somebody was asking him, he was telling him how they, he was currently, you know, investing in something. I said, well, you know, why do you think that? Or, you know, why, why are you predicting that? And he said, look, I'm not predicting, I'm observing I'm not predicting, I'm observing. And that's what all of us have to do. We shouldn't be imposing our view of what should happen or what will happen. We shouldn't be predicting. We should be observing and reacting to that, right? And by reserving, observing, I mean observing with clear eyes. Look, a 60-40 portfolio right now, being invested in public markets, so long as they are being used as a utility, right, where, where everyone is just trying to prop up assets, I'm going to stay levered long to that. But I don't believe that in my heart. This is not my permanent positioning, right? What it is, it is my current reaction to the current observations I am making about the world. I'll give you another example. So, you know, this uh, diplomat, you, know, you were a history student like I was, right? So Lord Palmerston, you know, he's the guy who said, look, England does not have permanent allies, we have permanent interests, right? And that's true for each of us as individuals, as investors. We don't have a permanent view on, well, we should, you know, keep a 60-40 portfolio to the day you die. And, you know, long-term, you know, bonds, that's your, that's your answer to diversifying your equity risk. Look, that is a tactical decision that I'm prepared to make today. I don't have any permanent allies when it comes to investments in terms of permanent strategies. What I have, though, are permanent interests. And, and, and I'm going to observe and I'm going to react. And that's what we should all be doing right? because that's how we get through this. That's how we get through this. So I want to ask you one more narrow question. I could talk for hours, but I, we're, in 10 minutes, I promise you we will we'll be done. Um, I, I want to ask you about this concept of taxation as justice and um, the, the new, new entry into the conversation, which is uh, wealth taxes. It's funny. I wrote a book called Setting Sun in, in the, during the crisis years, and I predicted that wealth taxes would come into the discussion at some point. And it, I'm very much a free markets guy in orientation, but my, my view is that I'm a free markets guy if we're starting from scratch. We're starting from a very weird place now, so I'm not necessarily free markets when we're starting from this very weird place. But I, I predicted its entry into the conversation uh, based on really two things. One was since financial assets have been the most subsidized industry area of the economy for 30 plus years, uh, it would be somewhat reasonable as retribution to, to go to the holders of financial assets as a funding source. And the other, the other reason I thought they would enter the conversation is because um, if you look at the 
120 year history of government revenue or, or a hundred year history of government revenue, we've had a wide variety of different tax regimes and we've hovered around 20% of GDP in federal government receipts. That's been true in super high marginal tax regimes and lower marginal tax regimes. We've just, we've hovered around that level. Um, and we can debate why that's true. Uh, there, I guess when marginal tax rates go up, there is some truth to the idea that that effort goes down or reporting goes down or something. Um, but as expenses are going up, it's hard to raise additional money by increasing income taxes and wealth in this country looms large relative to income. So in a way, it's not surprising that, that that's come into the discussion. What, but, in a, but we also know that it's very dangerous. Like if you start taxing wealth at 1% a year, why not tax it at 10% a year or 20% a year? Uh, what, what is your thinking about this new entry into the conversation, wealth taxes? Well, so, so here's what I think. I, I, am, I am very much, I'll, let me put it this way. We're going to come down in the same place, Brandon, where, where I am begrudgingly thinking that a wealth tax, you know, I don't have a lot of problem with it, but we're going to get to that place from a different direction, right? So, so what, what, what you're saying, if I, if I take correctly. I'm undecided for the record. I'm undecided as a matter of policy. I just, I was able to predict that it would come into the conversation. Yeah. And I think it's a permanent part of the conversation now that, that now that it's been introduced. And Frank, I'll go farther than you. I, I, I think a wealth tax has a has a place. I'll, I'll say that. I think it's got a place. But I, but in this important point, but my reason for it is different than the reason you were describing earlier as a revenue source, right? It's a tax source. I think my sense is we both agree that the argument that, oh, a wealth tax should exist because it's just unfair for some people to be wealthier than others. I, I'm, I suspect that neither of us supports that. Right? That, that, that to me is the, the worst of the arguments for a, for a wealth tax. And it's kind of the, I'll call it the, you know, the Bernie bro light version, which is, oh, it's just unfair for someone to make more money than another person. I, I think that's a crappy reason to have a, a wealth tax. I, I think that's a real infringement on liberty and justice for all, right? <laughs> you know, imagine that. I get the argument you're making uh, that a wealth tax, well, that's what you gotta do to pay for something. Right? My view is that, well, if that's your problem, then no, you really need, do need to spend less. Right, as as hard as that is, and and frankly, when I say to, to, you know spend less, I'm not one of these guys who wants to you know cut back on you know the the social net and stuff like that. I mean, you know, if I were president, you know, my platform would be to to cut defense spending by you know a third, you know, just right there, right? I'd mothball you know huge chunks of the military. I'd, I'd go away from having a you know a a, a two-war doctrine, all, all this stuff. Right? So I, I don't want to, people to think I'm this, oh yeah, you want to just kind of cut government spending and you know, let people take care of themselves. That's not what I'm saying. But I do not think that a wealth tax is justified on any economic ground, right? Either because, oh, it's just unfair or because, oh, well, we need that to, to, to raise more money so we can spend more. I, I think then you have to cut spending. But here's where I do come down in, in favoring a wealth tax. My view is that enormous wealth, such has been created, um, you know, over the last certainly over the last ten years, and this all goes back, you know, more than more than ten years, twenty years, thirty years. Uh, my view is that enormous wealth creates unaccountable and permanent political power. That's my argument for a wealth tax, is that the political power of the, I like to call it the, you know, the nudging oligarchy, right, uh, of the very, very rich 
and the way that the very rich, in my view, have captured antitrust law, securities law, uh, trade policy, uh, monetary policy, for sure, right? Uh, tax code, you know, as we saw in that, that, that particularly in that 2017, um, I, I think, abomination of a, of, a, of a tax act, right? The way I, that I see that the, the very wealthy have captured those, the, the various points of the government spe spear, if you will, right? I mean, what is the point of the spear for government? It's your tax code, it's your monetary policy, it's your trade policy, it's securities laws, right? That is political power that I, I think has to be broken. And I don't know how to undo that political power without taking a flamethrower to the very rich, which is what a wealth tax does. I, I, I'm not happy with it. it. It bugs the crap out of me that this is where I come down on this. But I don't, I'm at a point where I don't know what else to do. Because I, I, I see the entrenchment of the very rich controlling these, again, these points of the sphere. Uh, and, I, and I don't know what to do other than, like I say, take a flamethrower to it. So, um, like I say, I, you know, we, I, I think we end up in kind of similar spots, but, 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 but maybe for different rationale. Well, I do feel like it's, a per it's gonna be a permanent part of the discussion at this point, and it would be uh, somewhat surprising if um, the tone didn't get more aggressive over yes. time. Because it's, a, it's amazing how far the conversation has changed like in a, in a two year period. Brandon, this is what I mean when I was talking earlier about how this le leads to, if not physical violence, the, it becomes a, a violent civic society where uh, it, it is that widening gyre, you know, as, as, as Yates would call it, where the center does not hold. And, and, and what I'm saying is that that's not a mean reverting phenomenon, that it only ends after enormous strife and conflict. Uh, and in that strife and conflict, the political rules, they, they change, they always change. What we have to do as humans is to hold on and keep alive what I like to call the small L liberal virtues right? and, and frankly the small C conservative virtues and not be captured by big L liberal and big C conservative to not, to not become, you know, as, as Ionesco would have called it, a, a rhinoceros, right? And, and, and that's really hard when you're being besieged by these events, but it's, 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 it's so necessary. And, th and that's why I find podcasts like yours, you know, the stuff that I write, it keeps me sane, right? To know that there are other people out there who are wrestling with these same issues. And honest to God, you know, we've got to stick together on this so that we can have these conversations because it's the only thing that's going to keep us together. Well, I agree. I'm so appreciative for this time. Uh, I, I was amazed when I, when I reached out and you were, you were willing to get on air with me. So I'm, I'm super thankful. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe a few years from now when I'm on podcast number 150 or something, we can, we can do this again. Don't wait so long. <laughs> All right. All right. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I hope, I Thanks, hope we'll man. be in touch. You got it, man. Take Bye. care.